Let's look at God's word together. First John chapter five is where we're gonna be for a little while this morning. First John chapter five, we're still in our series entitled Connect with God. And so we've been asking along the way basic questions of the Christian faith, questions about what does it look like to relate to God? What does it look like fundamentally to grow in our relationship with God, to mature in our relationship with God? So the questions that we've been studying so far have been everything from who is the Holy Spirit to how do I connect with God in scripture? How do I connect with God in prayer? How do I forgive? Last week, Pastor Dennis, if you weren't here, go back and listen, preached an incredible message on who needs the church. So biblical understanding of the indispensable place of the local church in our development as followers of Christ. And then today we're asking the question, how can I be sure of my faith? How can I be sure of my faith that I really have a relationship with God? And 1 John is written to address that, that exact question. Now, we're not going to read the whole, the whole letter, but I want to read a portion of it just to get us started, beginning in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Now skip down to verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Every now and then, the biblical writers give us a gift in the form of telling us explicitly exactly why they're writing what they're writing under divine inspiration and that gift exists right here in chapter five, verse 13. John is saying, if you're wondering what this whole letter is about, this is what I'm driving at under divine inspiration. I've written all of this so that the ones who believe in the name of the son of God may know that you have life, may have an assurance that you belong to him. You know, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, assurance wasn't in high supply. Matter of fact, the, one of the great Roman Catholic theologians of the time, a guy by the name of Cardinal Robert Bellarmine said, of all the Protestant heresies, the greatest is assurance. He didn't, he didn't pick on what Martin Luther was saying about the Pope, Martin Luther's denunciations of the Pope. He didn't pick on sola scriptura, the scripture alone as the rule of faith and practice for the church. He said the biggest of all the Protestant heresies is assurance. They think they can actually know without this ongoing working to prove that they still have it. And that's what John is addressing. You know, for many, even in our own day, assurance isn't necessarily passed around liberally in many different religions. The closest thing that one can, can experience in assurance is something like, in our culture, something like realizing, you know, I know there are a lot of people who are better than I am, who are morally further up the ladder 
uh, but there are a lot of people who are worse than I am, right? I'm sort of, I'm making sure I'm not at the bottom of the barrel, right? So I'm sort of, as long as I'm in the middle of the pack, I feel like I'm okay. And that's the, maybe the closest thing that we can come to assurance is just comparing ourselves, looking around and making sure we're not at the back of the line, right? Is it possible to know that we're right with God? And if it's possible, can you imagine a more important question to settle than that question? If it's possible to know that we're God's, to know that we're his children, that becomes an issue of paramount concern. And it's not necessarily an easy question to handle because the same Bible that speaks of of the security of the believer and the promises of God's grace also speaks about the possibility of false security. So there are passages in the Bible that are rich with promises and confidence. He will keep us to the end and so forth. But then there are all these warnings about falling back into judgment, right? So how do we manage this and how do we understand these passages? Enter 1 John, because 1 John is written to give assurance to true believers. That's the purpose. 5.13 again, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And in this letter, John offers us three tests of authentic faith. You might say three marks of authentic faith, and we're gonna look at those in just a moment. But as John ends his letter, so we were reading just a moment ago in chapter five, as John pushes to the end of his letter, there's this crescendo of assurance that comes in. So you see in verse 14, We just read verse 13, I've written so you may know you have eternal life. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have before him. And then you just see the word popping off the page, verse 15. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know, verse 18, we know, verse 19, we know that we are of God. Verse 20, we know the son of God has come and has given us an understanding. Why? To what end has he given us an understanding? So that we may know the true one. I want you to know it. I want you to be sure of it. I want you to be confident that you belong to him. And so these these tests are here. These really in a sense, maybe maybe tests is a word that can lead us in the wrong direction. Maybe marks is an even better word. So these tests, by calling them tests, I'm not suggesting, John's not suggesting that if you do these things, you'll earn your salvation. If you do these things, God will save you. No, it's more that these are telltale signs. These are the trademarks. These are, these are the family resemblances, the family traits of those who belong to Christ. My, my wife's maiden name is Simino, E-A-U-X at the end. And so she uh, grew up in a little, little town, Belrose, Louisiana. You can barely find it on a map. And she had 26 cousins who all lived probably in a 10 mile radius. Little bitty town, no, there, not, didn't even have a red light, had a blinking light. That was the claim to fame uh, in that part of South Louisiana. But there's, there's this interesting thing that if you grow up in that small town, in that area of small towns, you can recognize the Seminole family because they have this unique trait right here in their eyes. And my wife has strike, not to get awkward, strikingly beautiful eyes. And, and it kind of, just her whole family, like all the Seminole family, they all have these really beautiful eyes. Matter of fact, we were, and you can recognize them. Again, if you're from that area, you, you can see someone you didn't know was in the Seminole family, one of the cousins, right? I remember one time, years ago, we were driving through Plottenville, which is just a few miles away from Paula's hometown. And we saw a billboard with a realtor 
pictured on the, on the front of the billboard. And I said, she's a Seminole, isn't she? And she said, that's my cousin Lynn. Right, so there's this, there's this family trait that so many of them, it's not so much an eye color thing as it's like the setting of their eyes, right? It's, and it's unique, you can spot it immediately. In a similar way, these are family traits. It's almost like, it's almost like God is, is like the dad who puts, who puts his finger in the dimple of his son's, his toddler son's chin and then puts his, his left finger in the dimple of his own chin, right? See, you're mine. Right, we both got this thing to feel this right here. It, it's almost as though God is doing that in First John. He's saying, look, look, we're alike. You have the family trait. You have the resemblances of the family. And so there are these three marks or tests of authentic faith. The first is this, the belief test. If you would turn to chapter two, just flip over to chapter two. The belief test, beginning in verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you, it's a family trait, all of you know the truth. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not, liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. So there's this love of the the truth. There's this confidence and this, this uniform confession of faith that centers around the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, sound doctrine, this is in your notes, sound doctrine matters and false doctrine kills. He says in verse 23 again, no one who denies the son has the father and he who confesses the son has the father as well. Doctrine is just another word for teaching and the New Testament is pro-doctrine. It's a fan of sound doctrine, right? Paul told his, his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, who was a leader in the church at Ephesus and he said, hey Timothy, watch your life, but he didn't just say, watch your life, watch the way you live. He said, watch what you teach, watch your doctrine, because in so doing, in watching your life and watching your doctrine, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Doctrine matters in the Bible. Look, think about it. Whether you get your view of God from his word or you conjure it up in your own imagination is the difference between true worship and idolatry. God tells us in his word what to believe about him and ourselves and salvation and so forth. Again, verse 23, no one who denies the son has the father. There is uh, such a a common and popular trend in postmodern culture, right? And that is that we think that we can do an end run around Jesus and get to God by some other ways. You know what I mean? Just as long as you're sincere, you can get to God. That, Jesus stands in the way of that truth. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the door. You want to get to him, you come through me. There's no other way to the Father except through me. Whoever believes in him will not perish. In him who? Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but will have everlasting life. And Jesus says in the very next verse, whoever doesn't is condemned already. 
Why? Jesus says, because they refuse to believe in the name of the one and only Son of God. It's, an, it's a unique claim. It is, an, it is a wildly, radically exclusive claim that Jesus makes. I am the only way to God. But there's good news. There's a way to God. <laughs> Believing in Christ, right? That, that's, that's the truth of scripture. That's the truth of the Christian faith. There has never been another one like Jesus on this planet. No one else is the eternal son of God who became man, incarnate God, who lived a perfect life, who worked miracles to attest to his divine sonship, who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off, went to the cross, dying as a substitute in the place of sinners, bearing God's condemnation against our sin and then walking out of the tomb three days later and offering salvation to all who believe in him. That is the gospel. That is the central message of the Christian faith. You believe that, you have eternal life. Not just parroting the words, but you believe that message from the heart. You take that Christ as Lord in your own personal life and your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. You're set, you're adopted into his forever family Your judgment is gone, it's been laid on Christ. You have a home in heaven, right? That that is, friends, that's the most important decision you could possibly make. And, And let me just say, to those who have not put your trust in Jesus, there's no more important thing to settle today. Run to the one and only Savior whom God has provided to rescue us from our sins. Trust in Christ, commit to following Christ. That is the most recognizable family trait of genuine believers. They believe the truth about Jesus as preached by the apostles. Speaking of the preaching of the the apostles, John makes a shocking claim in chapter four, verse six. He says, we are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Again, what a remarkable claim. If someone says something different about the Son, Jesus Christ being God himself, the eternal Son of God, they're wrong. You have to believe this truth. It all centers on Jesus. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, Christians have believed that truth for centuries. 2,000 years in countless dialects, God's people have been saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus saves. Jesus is the only son of God. The church has been singing for 2,000 years, Jesus died for me, Jesus rose again on the third day, Jesus is coming back. It's it's the uniform witness of all the people with the family trait, all the people who, who have been brought into this family of God sing that same song, Christ is all in all. Christ is Lord. His name is above every other name. The belief test, number two, the obedience test. Turn to chapter one, the obedience test. Chapter one, verse five, 
This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I love uh, Acts 4.13 where the crowds are sizing up Peter and John. They're hearing these, these two men preach and proclaim the gospel and they're sizing them up. And the first thing they notice about Peter and John is actually not flattery. They say, Luke reports that the people said, these guys aren't educated, are they? It's the first thing they notice. <laughs> they're untrained and they're uneducated. But Luke adds to that, but they notice their boldness and they recognize they had been with Jesus. Again, it was, it was a family resemblance at that point, right? Some of these people had heard Jesus. He had traveled all around through these areas. And one of the things that the crowds who gathered around and heard Jesus teach noticed about him during his earthly ministry was that there was this strange sense of authority in what he said. And then they're hearing Peter and John and the similarity is unmistakable. They noticed for all of the uneducated, you know, they can't conjugate correctly or subject verb agreement. Who, who knows what it was that told these people, these guys haven't really gone to school. But whatever it was that was there, it didn't take away from the fact that, but there is a boldness that sounds a lot like Jesus. They look just like him. The same thing is here. Chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there's no darkness in him. Verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him, the light, and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and are not practicing the truth. You see the point here, it's in your notes. God is light, walking with him, we become people of light. It's a family resemblance. You can spot the people who walk with the God who is light because they're people of light. Does that mean that they're perfect? Does that mean that this is arguing for some kind of sinless perfectionism? No, read the next verse. <laughs> verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, these are not people of light because they're conjuring it up from within themselves. You know, they're pulling themselves up by their bootstraps or they're, they're, produce, they're light producers, just churning it up, almost like if you've ever seen, you know, those old bicycles that are hooked up to the, to the light bulbs and the faster you pedal, the, the brighter the lights get. That's not what he's representing, these people of light. They're just, they're turning the pedals of religious activity so fast, they're just shining all over the place. No, it's not a conjured up light. It's a picture of people who, admit that we're messed up and run to Jesus together. Run to him and we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to cleanse us and he just keeps doing that. We live out here in the light, confessing our sins, opening up, living in that truth, right? If that's the goal and direction of your life, John is saying, you have the family resemblance. You belong to him. The apostle Paul prayed for the believers in Colossae. I love this prayer. I've been praying this a lot more this year. Colossians, he says, that you would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing 
to him. Christians don't want to be partially pleasing to Christ. It's not legalism to desire to be fully pleasing to Christ. That is not legalism. It's the purpose of the Christian life to be conformed to the image of Christ the Son, to look just like him doesn't mean we'll pull that off tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now, but we're being shaped more and more and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. So there's this belief test, there's this mark of obedience, and then there's the love test. Third, the love test. If you'll turn to chapter three. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Hear those words again. We know, we know that we have passed from death to life. How do you know? Because we love our brothers and sisters. That's how. Because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also, it's a family resemblance, right? We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Friends, we have a problem in the church today and it's not new, it's an old problem but it's still here. As a matter of fact, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention just had to write a public letter to Southern Baptists to address cases of abuse being mishandled among other things. Rowling up, acclaimed author Beth Moore shared experiences from her past of being objectified, of being insulted, of being treated dismissively by Christian men in leadership over many years, and then right after that comes out, so many Christians listen with empathy, many Christians lean in, desiring to see this change, and then others proved the very culture of dismissiveness that she was just writing about, blowing her off, blog post reactions, vitriol, anger, reactionary outbursts against what she was saying. All along, friends, the world is watching. The world is watching this nonsense. The only thing we're not providing is free popcorn. It is sad. It is a tragedy. It is a blight on Christianity and on Christ that we represent. Let me put it this way. The gospel makes our unity possible. Our disunity makes the gospel laughable. The gospel makes our unity possible. Ephesians 2, the cross has torn down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile or whoever it is that's fighting in the body of Christ. The wall has been obliterated by the cross and yet here we go building it back up again in the eyes of the world and they're saying, seriously, so I thought you said something changed (laughs) because Jesus died. Jesus said the one thing that will prove to the world that what you're saying is true is the love that you have for one another. Sometimes I wish he hadn't set it up that way. Wish he hadn't set it up that way, right? Because we can, we can mouth the words of a saving gospel and the unbelieving skeptical culture just looks at us and says, I hear you talking, but you people hate each other. You people don't love each other. You don't listen to each other. 
Jesus says to first century believers. Don't, don't say you love the God whom you don't see when you fail to love your brother made in his image who's standing directly in front of you. We over-mystify the Christian faith. We make it so easy because it's all just about this vertical stuff and we don't have to sort things out here. John says, no, flag on the play. We have to sort it out here or else it looks like a joke to the world. James says, they blaspheme that noble name by which you're called. You know that's happening out there. Listen, because out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. Get it together. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2. Euodia and Syntyche, they're fighting like cats and dogs and the whole world can see it. Can you help these women sort it out? It matters for the gospel. I wonder how quiet the world might get if they heard believers who had major differences on this or that issue say things like, I'm gonna stop talking, I'm gonna listen to what you have to say. If they heard at the end of that conversation someone say something like, I never considered that before. I'm really sorry. You're right. Or saying something like, given the choice between you and winning this, I pick you. If the culture saw that, maybe they'd find the gospel more credible, right? I meet with four pastors on a regular basis, two black and two white, and another local minister in our city. We meet on a regular basis. We had another two-hour meeting this past Monday. And what we're trying to do every month as we meet and we tell each other our stories and, we, and the hope and goal is to listen to each other to listen to each other, to seek to understand and not to be understood, to seek to listen to one another. And look, it's a lot easier said than done. But we're making slow progress. <laughs> and at the end of our meeting, this past Monday, I, just said, I looked at my brothers and I said, I, I know we, we hear all this noise around us and it's even here in our city. There was a big meeting on Friday. I'm not even gonna go into it, a big meeting. That, that showed the, the problem of racial reconciliation issues in the church right here in our city. And I said, I know this noise is all around us, but brothers, I, I hope I'm not naive in saying, I'm optimistic about the future. I, I'm confident that God is working in this area. My brother, Alton Hardy, as soon as I said that, he said, amen, and he said, he, he dropped the C.S. Lewis Reference. He said, Aslan is on the move. God, God is working in his church. He is enabling us to hear each other better, to move toward each other in reconciliation. Brook Hills, can I just stop for a second? Brook Hills, let's not miss this. Let's not miss this opportunity. Let's lean fully into the opportunity to demonstrate to the world the unifying power of the gospel, the reconciling power of the gospel. Let's be known for that. All right, so how do we take this home? Practically speaking, four practices for cultivating assurance. Four practices for cultivating assurance. And, and obviously the subtext is this. Don't be passive about your assurance. <laughs> let's, let's look for ways. And, and that's what the scriptures are for. The scriptures in which God is coming to us and saying, look for the trademarks, look for the family traits. They're there, look for them. And so don't be passive about assurance. Let's do these. Number one, cultivate a love for the truth. Cultivate a love 
for the truth? Do you love God's word? Are you reading God's word? Are you hearing it regularly preached? Are you assembling around the truth of God's word, meditating on scripture? Let me just stop and just talk to small group leaders for a second. So, so men and women in this church who are teaching people the Bible on a regular basis, are you careful in handling the scriptures? Are you reading it slowly, examining the context to make sure what you're saying is biblical? Does it agree with other parts of scripture? Or is this just some wild hair idea that you got out of that verse, taking it out of context? Are we careful? That's why James says things like, let not many of you become teachers because you'll incur stricter judgment. Why? Because when we teach error, we're feeding people poison. We want to teach the truth. God knows that we're fallible. We're all a work in progress. I'm grateful. Something J.I. Packer said many years ago. He said, God is, is able to preserve the faith of someone who has a needle of truth in a haystack of error. <laughs> I'm grateful for that. But that doesn't make me any looser in wanting and being willing to just shell out error. <laughs> Let's be purveyors of truth. Proclaimers of biblical truth. Look, no quality control is more important in our faith family than to make sure that what's being taught to every member of our church is faithful to the word of God. It's not just our ideas or an imaginative reading of the text. It's true in the passage. Small group leaders, are you eager to inform the elder over you as to what it is that you're feeding your small group? Is there an eagerness? Because we want, we want eyes on this. We want to make sure that we're teaching the truth. As Christians, think about this in terms of when we see in God's word things that cross us. Right? The Bible crosses me on a regular basis. It, it confronts me. It says things I don't want to do. It tells me to turn around. Tells me I got a bad instinct or, or my response was reactionary rather than redemptive and careful, right? As Christians, don't resist when God's word corrects you. I think this is a family trait that Christians who love the truth are ready to hear hard things provided we see them clearly in the pages of scripture. That should be a family trait across every believer in this room. I am ready to hear hard things from God's word provided they're coming from God's word. Bring it and may I change. God, change me. We talk about this as our primary value that shapes everything else that we are. We, in this We Are series last year, we started with what? We abide biblically. Everything's downstream from there. We abide biblically or we start withering on the vine. Right? You lop off a branch that has an apple on the end of it, the apple still looks good, but check it out in six hours. Check it out in six days. Right? It, it's not connected to the life source. The same thing is true if we're not abiding in God's word, we're not connected to the life source. We will wither in everything else that we're doing as a church if we're not abiding in his word. Two, ask God to give you fresh assurance of his love. Fresh assurance of his love. Ask for it through daily worship. 
your daily time in prayer, your daily time in his word. Ask for it through weekly gathered, weekly corporate worship. God loves to do this. You know, I, I think about my own life and relationships. I'm not sure that there is a guy in my life who, who more regularly tells me, Matt, I love you, than Dale Kendrick. Right? And at first, it was a little awkward. Uh, but now, I wait for it. And I feel slighted if I don't hear it, right? It's like the, I've learned to listen for this word. He, he has said it from the very beginning, I love you, right? And in the same way, God is a father who loves to tell his children, I love you. Hey, I delight in you. Hey, I get a kick out of you. I like you. Our Father delights in us and he has, if we're attentive and we're waiting for it and we're listening for it as we're reading his word, we're gonna hear him in a thousand different ways saying, I love you, I delight in you, I take pleasure in you. It's one of the Heavenly Father's favorite things to do is to assure us of his love. That's why he sends us his spirit according to Romans chapter eight. He sends his spirit into the hearts of New believers to do what? He says, Spirit, go, move on in and teach that infant believer her first word. Abba, Father. Teach this believer, I'm her father. I'm his father. He he can know me in that kind of relationship. It's one of the father's favorite things to do. You think about it in the context of parenting. If one of your children said, what do you think about me? Dad, mom? Tell me, how am I doing? Right? Don't, don't we want, isn't that sort of like teeing it up? Like seriously, I can't wait to just pour out affection. You're, the child is literally asking for it. Awesome, let's do this, right? God, in that way, we, we come to him in, we open his word before us and it's as though we're saying, show me. Show me your love for me so that our response of love might be reciprocated, right? We love him because he first loved us. There's nothing more transformative than the love of God. Ask God to give you fresh assurance of his love, right? If, you can't, if you're going through a, bit, a daily Bible reading plan and you're reading some obscure passage in Ezekiel and you can't hear God saying, I love you, right? It's hard. I'm saying it's there, but maybe you're not hearing it. Um, switch out. Before you're done your Bible reading, hop over to Romans 8, where you can hear it loud and clear. And then tomorrow, when you read the next chapter in Ezekiel, also can't hear it, Romans 8, right? So, so when in doubt, Romans 8. Just keep going over and over and over where you can hear it clearly. Third, Take responsibility for fellow members' spiritual health and vice versa. Let them take responsibility for your spiritual health. This one might be counterintuitive, but bolster your assurance through Christian fellowship. That's part of what baptism's all about. It's people gathering around the water, hearing your public declaration of faith and saying, yes, it happened. We see it. We see the evidence of God's grace in your life. It wasn't just some emotional experience you had in your own head years ago or last month. There's evidence that Christ is changing you. We're here to bear witness to that. So you hear other people's voices in your audible ears praising God for his grace 
in your life, right? Bolster your assurance through Christian fellowship. If you haven't heard, again, last week's sermon, it is a must listen. One of the best messages on, on what scripture says about the importance of committed membership in the local church for our maturity as believers. Read the book of Hebrews. Oh my goodness, the, the corporate call, the, the marshalling of soldiers to keep, keep pressing forward. The, the book of Hebrews, it is a spiritual war zone. You can practically hear missiles flying overhead, bullets zipping by, right, as these believers are tempted to turn back away from Christ in the midst of persecution and hardship, and they're tempted to turn back. And so there are almost two soundtracks in the book of Hebrews as you read through it. One is just the sound of, of missiles and gunfire, and the other is the sound of believers grabbing each other by the jacket, pulling them in and saying, you're not gonna turn back. We're gonna make it through to the end. We're gonna persevere. Do not harden your hearts as our fathers did a generation ago. We're gonna hold firm this hope to the end, you and me. That's, that's the language that you hear in the context of Hebrews. Right after one of the biggest warning passages in all of, of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10. After that warning, in the very next verse, in Hebrews 10, 39, you can almost hear these, these brothers and sisters grabbing each other by the scruff of the neck and saying, we are not of those who fall back and are destroyed, but of those who persevere and are saved. We are gonna make it across the tape together. It's this corporate marshalling together. You, you wanna fortify your soul against future temptation? Answer this question. Who in this church, I'm not talking about somebody in Portland, who in this church is helping you stay on the path that leads to heaven and who will stand in your way the day you want to turn back away from Christ who will care enough to speak the truth to you when you start believing the lies the enemy of your soul is telling you number four keep leaning on God's sufficient grace keep leaning on God's sufficient grace the ultimate perspective of faith is upward and outward think about how doubt does its work right doubt does its best work when our eyes are down right when we're when we're being sucked into the the, the vortex of unhealthy introspection Right, and we go further and further and further down. That, that's why I love the Psalms. That's why I love when the psalmist says to himself, for example, he says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? He's talking to himself. Why are you so downcast? And then he preaches to himself, hope in God. Hope in God. I love Psalm chapter three because it pictures God in, in some surprising ways, right? God is our shield he is our glory. And what else does God do in Psalm 3? He's the one who lifts our heads. He's the one who takes our eyes up and says, eyes on me. Hey, look up here. I am able. I am faithful. I am capable. He is our glory and the lifter of our heads. At the end of the day, our faith only gets stronger when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, not on ourselves. Our ultimate assurance is not found in measuring how well we've done or how well we're doing, but meditating on what Christ has done 
for us. That's the centrality of the good news of the gospel message. I don't know if there is a truth in all of the Bible that is more precious to me than the truth of assurance. In part because if you have any kind of history of introspection, just sort of taking, taking the light of truth down into the cave and all the gunk and mire of your thoughts and you kind of never come out, right? It's possible. You, you look in the mirror so long and you're trying to tidy up and, and you eventually start living as though you think the mirror is gonna change you. Or if I just look longer, I can make myself presentable to God. The doctrine of assurance, Charles Spurgeon said his favorite doctrine in all the Bible is the truth of assurance. We need this truth. If we're given to unhealthy introspection, we need this truth. If you're not given to unhealthy introspection, in some ways I envy you. But the flip side, the flip side is that it makes me eager every Sunday to hear my brothers and sisters sing assurance into these ears. Sing firm, objective gospel hope into these ears. I'll I'll never forget talking to a young Christian many years ago when I was a college minister and having a conversation. And this was his description of the Christian life. He said, this is verbatim, he said, I feel like such a loser. He said, I feel like a loser with all the wrong habits. And, And I can still see the pure dejection in that brother's countenance. And he said, I feel like other people just change because they wake up and decide to. And I fight and I claw to believe the good news that God has accepted me in Christ. And he said, it is an absolute war and I feel like such a loser. I'm so grateful for 1 John 5, 13. I've written these things to you who what? who believe in the name of the Son of God. (laughs) I who punch all the checklist of chores and spiritual activities. You believe, right? I've written this to you who believe so that you may know you have it. You have eternal life. One of my favorite modern hymns. I love it because it is just pure gospel therapy. This is what it says. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last, bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Now there are men and women in this room every Sunday. You're here right now. And and you're in the throes of spiritual siege. You are under attack. You are weary. You feel like your grip is failing. And because that has been the common experience of Christians for 2,000 years of church history, we have a New Testament that is brimming with the promises of grace. And because we have a room full of people 
who have that common experience in this room, because of that, we sing ourselves firm into hope every single Sunday. And I wanna ask you as a church to sing louder. And that's not a metaphor. I mean it literally, sing louder. (laughs) How loud? Loud enough to drown out the accuser. (laughs) Loud enough to break through the ears of doubting, weary Christians. Loud enough to sing assurance into their souls that God delights in you because of Christ not because of anything that you've done or anything you're doing or anything you'll do in the future, so that we might more fully rest in the promises of his grace and lean on his everlasting arms.